Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You can't talk about freedom of speech if really all you want is freedom of your speech. I think there's a limit on what warrants protected speech. I don't think it's artistic. If it's freedom of speech, it should be truly freedom of speech. Those are the rules that everybody agreed on. It's an adult album with an adult sticker on it sold to other people's children. Welcome back. Uh, That's from the trailer for a new documentary called Cover Your Ears, which is going to be screening this month at the Calgary International Film Festival. And it's a look at the issue of censorship in the music industry. And as long as there has been recorded music, these issues have come up. We're talking about a story that really, for all intents and purposes, spans 100 years. Uh, Certainly when you look more at maybe the last, I don't know, 70-ish years, you know, the era of popular music, it's been a big factor when you've got record labels and radio stations, politicians, all a part of this, uh, part of these conversations, uh, these issues can and do come up. Certainly the recent uh, film Elvis explored a lot of that, what was going on in that era. I mean, I came up in the era of the parental advisory sticker and the two live crew being on, on trial and uh, Tipper Gore and those uh, hearings uh, in Washington. But even to this day in the digital world, these uh, issues do still persist. So as mentioned, a new documentary called Cover Your Ears explores all of this. You can see it. A couple of screenings coming up the uh, Calgary International Film Festival uh, next Friday, the 22nd. Uh, and uh, our next guest will be in attendance for that. And then again on Saturday, September 30th. Uh, joining us to talk more about the film, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, its director, Alberta-born filmmaker Sean Patrick Shaw, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Sean, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, congrats on this, by the way. And there's there's some really interesting uh, names and faces uh, in in this uh, documentary. Those who follow the the world of music, I think, uh, like Chuck D. For me, certainly stood out. But uh, talk a bit about kind of what got you interested in in exploring the history of this in depth. Well, this is my seventh film, and I I always kind of tend to make documentaries that are kind of on the fringes of the entertainment industry in one way or another. And uh, I'm just a big music geek. And uh, the more we unraveled this story, the more we were like, wow, I can't believe there's not a documentary on music censorship. So we dove in, and it was so fun to make. Yeah, I'll bet it was. So how far back does this go? Like I said, I mean, it kind of feels like, you know, we're talking about not just back to the dawn of rock and roll, but even further back than that. Yeah, we really cover from the birth of recorded music, so kind of the fear of jazz um, is the first really instance that we cover, but we, we touch on as far back as Mozart. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people don't know that Mozart wrote lyrics at all, let alone filthy, filthy lyrics. Yeah, yeah I didn't know that. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So when we talk about censorship, and this kind of comes in different forms where, you know, in some cases stuff is outright banned, where in other cases, you know, it's kind of pushed underground or it's, you know, it's, it's framed a certain way or, you know, politicians denounce it or radio stations won't play it. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about music censorship? That's a great question because censorship does kind of cover all of these different things. 
Um, there can be public pressure that keeps it off of record store shelves. It can be banned outright. It can be bleeped. It can be, you know, radio edit versions. Um, there's all types of different forms of censorship, and we try to cover all of it and and the reflection of society and culture and what made that happen and the effect it had on culture after it happened. Right, and I guess that's why it matters, because music does shape culture, doesn't it? So it, it draws that attention. Definitely, and definitely um, with the youth especially. Um, it really, really took off with kind of the birth of television and rock and roll happening at the same time. And that became a time when the youth started listening to music that was different than what their parents listened to. And it really has just kept going since then. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's really a, a hot topic. Music has always, uh, always been a concern for people. Yeah, apparently. And so it's interesting to see where it's it's really reared its head. I mean, you mentioned, you know, going back to jazz in the 20s, certainly you can look at the experience uh, of hip hop and maybe that speaks to some racial issues. But I mean, you also explore you know, heavy metal and, and punk rock music. So there, there's more going on here. So what, what, in your view, drives all of this? Well, when we set out to make the film, we did not intend on making a film that was about race. But the more we dove into it over the last hundred years, really the only time that race wasn't a big factor was that 80s heavy metal era. Mm-hmm. Um, even the hippie culture, uh, a lot of that was kind of fear of race in a lot of ways. But definitely blues, jazz, hip-hop, um, yeah, well, even early rock. rock and roll, like, you know, I mentioned Elvis. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of seen as, as a white artist doing black music, and that, that was very much frowned upon at the time. Definitely. Do you feel like a lot of this is, is you know, we're talking in the past tense, like the censorship that existed. I mean, it feels like the music industry is so different now. It's so easy to get music directly to people. It's, it's a lot harder to censor stuff online. Or are these issues still lurking? Are they still out there? Yeah, well, it definitely has shifted. I mean, streaming services have their own kind of list of censorship rules, um, and they're a lot more lenient. And, of course, the Internet, you can find absolutely anything. But we found that the kind of latest form of censorship, which seems like the most dangerous, is the legal end of it. Um, We're seeing, like, numerous hip-hop artists that are on trial where their lyrics are brought in as evidence. Oh, yeah? And that's kind of a, a new thing and i think 2007 was maybe the first case of that but it's been happening continuously and there's uh rappers on trial right now where their lyrics have been entered into court mentioned some of the the voices you include in this uh, chuck d a public enemy a hip-hop pioneer you've also got uh, d snyder uh from the group twisted sister and and you know it speaks to some of those issues in the 80s a lot of other recognizable names from from the world of music what kind of per- pers- perspective were you looking for in reaching out to artists like this and what kind of stories did they have to share yeah we were trying to get a good swath of the entertainment or the music industry and try to focus on not just punk music or just metal or just hip-hop, but to try to really get a, a little bit of everything mm-hmm. and to cover all those eras, too. So we try, we talked to, I mean, Country Joe McDonald, who was at Woodstock, all the way up to a rapper named Tiny Doo, whose lyrics were uh, sent him to jail. Mm-hmm. So, so we, yeah, we try to cover that entire ground, and we just approach them with, 
what does censorship mean to you and uh you know what are what are the benefits and what are the dangers of it so as mentioned you're going to be in attendance for the uh, friday screening next week uh and i, I know you know the, these kinds of you know topics generate a lot of conversation what, what's been the reception so far to this uh the reception's been great um we've taken home three awards for best documentary so far so at our german canadian and american premieres which is amazing so the audiences seem to love it and i feel like it's it kind of sparks conversation a bit um i know it did for me when i was making the film i kind of went into it thinking i had a pretty good idea of my view on censorship but the more i dove in the more i was aware that it's a pretty gray area and i think everyone does have a line somewhere mm-hmm. and uh I, I found it interesting to find my own line and look at my own record collection and say can i justify listening to this or is this too far and and if not why how can i justify it yeah and it's funny because I, I remember being a you know a teenager and you know wondering why my parents would would what do you care what i'm listening to why are you getting so worked up about that and then you get older and you become a parent and you're like well I don't know. Do I want my kids listening to that? So, yeah, there, there are a lot of different sides to all of this. Definitely. I mean, the the lyrical content is, you know, there's a line for everybody. Um, I've, I always give the example of it's illegal to make a death threat, but if you put a beat behind it, you can. So yeah. that's kind of a, a strange gray area for me. And, uh, of course, like hate music and right. uh, that sort of thing is like, to be an absolute uh, absolutist about free speech, you kind of have to let all of that in. And I don't know that I am. Yeah, some interesting questions. So the film is called Cover Your Ears, uh, more at CoverYourEarsDoc.com. So a couple screenings coming up, the Calgary International Film Festival, Friday the 22nd at 9.30, Saturday the 30th at 9.30. It's KiffCalgary.ca, C-I-F-F, Calgary.ca is the website. Uh, more details on, on tickets and uh, screening times. Sean, again, congrats uh, on the film, and thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's Sean Patrick Shaw, Alberta-born filmmaker, director of the documentary Cover Your Ears. A look at the history of censorship in the music world, the various forms it takes, and what's driven a lot of those debates. And yeah, it, it's still, you know, it's still part of the, some of the culture war debates today around, you know, what's okay or what should be tolerated or what goes too far, or what's too political or what's too offensive. So it, it comes up in each generation in different forms. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Wednesday afternoon. We'll get to your phone calls in this hour. We've got some other stuff to get to as well. Uh, for all the talk about housing, new numbers out today from the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation show we're just not at the level of seriousness that's needed to address the issue. Canada, it will be short about 3.5 million homes by 2030 compared with what's needed to restore affordability. Fact, the CMHC is actually slightly more pessimistic when it comes to the number of homes that will be built between now and 2030. This gap has actually widened. Uh, so that's really worrying. And, and like I say, pretty disappointing and frustrating, given that it feels like this issue is getting a lot more attention right now. We got a lot more work to do. Uh, so today we have the federal government. The prime minister talked up a, a big housing announcement, but it was uh, more of a rehash of the uh, accelerator fund that they announced in the budget of 2022. Although it was really new today, was an announcement that London, Ontario, has qualified for some of that funding. 
But look, we've got uh, all three levels of government talking about these uh, these issues. So is it that they're not talking about these issues in the right way or that they're, they're just not getting beyond the talking phase? Like what's actually needed in terms of either government policy, government intervention, governments getting out of the way to really make a difference here? Well, someone who's been writing a lot about these issues, he's got a, a new piece up at uh, thehub.ca, is Steve Lafleur, is an independent public policy analyst uh, based uh, in Toronto, a senior fellow, a former senior policy analyst as well with the Fraser Institute. Uh, Steve, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so like I say, we, we, we're hearing a lot more talk about this issue, but at least based on the CMHC's uh, forecast, we're, we're actually falling a bit further behind. What do you think that is, first of all? Well, I think to, to back it up, I think that housing is an issue that traditionally, you know, the federal government largely got out of housing policy, you know, in the 1990s. Um, one of the bigger levers that, that they used to pull in the past was, you know, funding social housing, and they, you know, to a large extent, got out of that in the 1990s. Um, and housing wasn't really a big problem for Canada for a long time, so it wasn't really thought of as a federal issue for the most part. Right. Then along comes, you know, the mid-2000s in Ontario and Vancouver, and things started to really accelerate. Um, and since 2020, things have gotten so far out of hand that we've gone from the idea that, you know, it's not a federal issue to every government needs to start pulling levers right now. And I think everybody got caught flat-footed, and people are still trying to figure out precisely what to do going forward. Yeah, I, I think that's a good overview of things. Um, you know, we, we do have all three levels of government that've got some responsibility for for the issue of housing. Uh, is is that a problem though? Because you know, you get overlapping jurisdiction, or you got the passing of the buck, or maybe you know, lack of agreement on, on what's necessary. Is that part of the problem here? That there's just too much government involvement. It certainly can be a problem. Um, for instance, in transportation policy, this is often a very big problem because there are different priorities and what gets funded, what gets funded is that everybody what everybody can agree on, which is often not necessarily the right thing, but the least controversial thing. And in housing policy, there is some of that buck passing you're, you're seeing um, going along. Um, the province of Ontario, the province of BC, um, some other uh, smaller provinces have also started to take a more active role, recognizing that local city councils are not allowing enough housing to get built. Um, so there, there, there has been some increased accountability on senior levels of government. And to their credit, the major political parties at the national level are starting to talk about it as though they do have a role. Um, mm -hmm. So there is some buck passing, but there are some encouraging signs that maybe we're starting to get to a point where everybody's finally realizing that they can't pass the buck. There's also the issue of, you know, what is the crisis here? How are we defining the crisis? And you talk about in, in your piece we mentioned that's up at the hub.ca where we've kind of got almost like two separate issues that, yes, both have to do with housing. But what you say is uh, one crisis, we don't have enough market rate housing versus the other crisis where there's not enough social housing. So why are these different issues, even if they overlap in some ways? Well, I think it gets people talking past each other. So the vast majority of people own or rather um, live in market rate housing. Um, I'm sorry. Um, am, am I still there? Yeah, we still got you, Steve. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got no, that's okay. Coming in. I apologize for that. <laughs> All good. Um, uh, yes, sorry. The vast majority of people live in market rate housing. Um, mm -hmm. And the only way to really address affordability for them is to build more housing. But... Some people will argue, you know, okay, 
you're just going to build luxury condos, which really is just another way of saying normal condos, um, and poor people aren't going to be able to afford it. And fine, that is a good point. However, that argument really distracts from solving the, the main issue, which is that most people, you know, who are even middle class and upper middle class are having a hard time, you know, buying a house or even in some cases making rent. Right. Um, the other problem is a more niche problem, but one that in some ways requires more resources. Um, somebody who genuinely will never be able to pay market rent rates often have greater issues that need to be addressed, whether it be mental health, um, other kinds of social problems. So I think we need to compartmentalize these a little bit, but also recognize that you're not going to take care of that second, you know, more niche housing crisis if you're getting to the point where people who earn over $100,000 a year are starting to, you know, need help themselves. So we really need the market to take care of that side so that we can take care of the second side. Right. And, and these problems require, I guess, separate solutions. But if we don't address one, like if we don't in- address the market rate housing issue and, and more people, you know, that becomes further, further out of reach for them, we risk exacerbating the, the social housing issue. Yeah, exactly. So um, me and a colleague of mine uh, recently did a paper for the McDonald Laurie Institute, for instance. And what we tried to do is we looked at um, what would it take if you take the logic that, you know, we just need the government to solve the whole problem, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. And we made the most generous assumptions possible. Uh, We took the lowest number of estimate. Basically, we looked at CMHC's core housing indicator, which is basically how many people you know, are not meeting a, a certain level of adequacy and affordability for housing. And we stripped out people who currently own but are still in the core need indicator for whatever reason because they don't have enough bedrooms for their family or they, you know, are um, not earning enough to comfortably pay the mortgage, et cetera. So we just looked at renters. And it's still, it's still over a million people. Um, the more people who are in that situation, the harder it is to address the whole crisis, because at the moment, if the government tried to, you know, just build out through public housing to meet that entire need, we're looking at, a, you know, we're looking at upwards of $200 billion to $300 billion. <laughs> that's, that's not something that's going to happen. No. Um, so we really need to shrink the number of people who are in core housing need so that we can focus on people who really need it. And that means letting the market take care of the biggest segment of the problem. Same time, though, I mean, if the government were to focus exclusively on social housing and, and work on, you know, paying for and building these new units, would that be enough supply, enough additional supply to, to measurably affect uh, overall prices? Like, would you know, if we have more supply on the, on the market, that should theoretically ease pressure, financial pressure, you know, the upward pressure on, on rents and housing prices. Would, but would it be enough? Yeah. So the, the point of our exercise was to show, you know, we're talking about numbers. And this is, by the way, just construction costs. This isn't purchasing land, which, depending on, you know, whether municipal governments or federal government owns the right land and doesn't have to do any demolition, et cetera. Like, it's just free and there, green field to build. It's an assumption that's unrealistic. We just wanted to put a floor on what the cost would be. And if you're starting to talk about numbers like 200 to $300 billion, it's just a non-starter. It's absolutely not going to happen. Um, so the idea that the federal government is going to move the needle on the overall housing market, I think it can be relegated to the realm of, of fantasy. Um, we really need housing starts to double, and we need the market to take the biggest brunt of that. That part of the crisis, we need the government to get out of the way for. 
Right, which is on, on the market rate side, that governments are, are maybe the obstacle in many cases. If we can get out of the way, allow market forces to play more of a role, then maybe we can get more housing built. But, I mean, governments do have a, a direct role to play, I guess, when it comes to the demand side, specifically, you know, the rate of population growth, because, you know, that, that's exacerbating the problem on this side. Yeah, so population growth is something the federal government controls, largely through immigration, things like uh, temporary foreign workers, things like um, uh, foreign students, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it may be the case that there's uh, some tweaking to do on these files, particularly with you know the, the college sector um, students. There, there certainly seems to be some challenges related to that. Um, but it's also important to remember, housing starts have gone down since the 1970s, uh, oh. you know, and we're a bigger population. So the fact that we're not building at least as much, if not more, than we were building then, that to me is the core of the problem. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the problem does vary across the country. I mean, even here in Alberta, you know, there's a a big difference in housing prices between Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, But I think we're seeing both cities and other cities, too, across the country at least having a conversation about, uh, you know, growth, you know, growing the footprint of the city, new neighborhoods, sprawl, as some call it, and also the issue of density and rezoning is a hot topic right now in both Calgary and Edmonton. But is that where a lot of that conversation is or needs to be happening? Yeah, a lot of it is very regionally specific. Um, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember back, what, what was it, six years ago in Calgary. I used to live in Calgary, and people would talk about their houses that they bought, you know, at the top of the boom, like they were never going to recover what they paid for it. And now all of a sudden, you know, a light switch flipped, and now prices are going crazy again. Vacancy shrinking very quickly. Um, people are flooding back into Calgary. Um, and if you don't have slack in the housing market in very many places in the country, it's very easy to get overwhelmed, especially in a world where people have more flexibility about where they live. I mean, Atlantic Canada has seen this. Who would have thought that Atlantic Canada would be in a major housing crunch right now? Yeah, And right. yet they are. So it's become something that was a Toronto and Vancouver issue. It's now a national issue um, with some variation, but to a large extent, it's hitting anywhere that isn't losing population. Absolutely. Well, your latest is mentioned up at thehub.ca. Steve, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Steve LaFleur, uh, public policy analyst, has written a lot uh, lately about the housing issue. And yeah, I think it's important to separate those two kind of separate issues, uh, the lack of market rate housing, which is what most people live in, and a lack of social housing. And he argues that on the latter, you know, there's a much stronger case for direct government involvement and funding. And that's kind of a separate issue you're trying to address. And that's more of a social issue that you would expect governments to have a role. So Suncor has a new or a new-ish CEO, uh, Rich Kruger. Uh, is now in charge uh, of the oil company. And, uh, you know, his job, his obligation to investors is that the company do well, is that the company be profitable. In a recent uh, call with investors, Rich Kruger suggested the path to that profitability is to focus less on energy transition issues and to focus more on their core business, which is oil sands. Uh, You know, oil prices have improved lately, uh, up around $85 a barrel, and so, yes, there's still demand for that. There's, there's profit to be made there. Now, by suggesting, though, an abandonment of clean energy issues, that's got the attention uh, of many folks in Ottawa. And I think Rich Kruger has realized that. He penned an op-ed this week for Post Media saying, look, we can do both. 
you know, profitability is the path to sustainability. We can focus short term on developing these fossil fuel resources, but certainly we're committed in the longer term to reducing emissions. We're part of the Pathways Alliance for a reason. Um, so I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Rich Kruger felt compelled to write an op-ed, given some of the attention, uh, as mentioned, he's been receiving from Ottawa. Included a comment uh, just recently from the federal environment minister saying, well, see, this is why we need an emissions cap on the oil and gas sector, which is a bit of a stretch as far as logic goes. But nonetheless, it shows that uh, they're paying attention. We've also got now a call from the NDP for Rich Kruger to uh, be called before a commons committee. The uh, parliament is set to resume next week. Uh, the committees will begin doing their work. Uh, Charlie Angus is new Democrat MP for Timmins, James Bay. He's the party's critic for natural resources. He sits on the natural resources committee, uh, and he's going to be bringing forward a motion calling on the committee to summon Rich Kruger before them to come before the committee to explain himself, to face some questions about whether he's committed to these environmental goals. Now, are, com are companies obligated to do that? You know, if there's opportunities here, then, you know, smart companies will figure that out. Others won't. Uh, if companies are being stubborn and just want to focus on developing oil and gas, well, again, there's environmental policies in place that put a price on that. So is that as far as we need to go? Or do we really need to scrutinize the decision that these companies are making. Well, joining us uh, to, to give his, his side of all of this, very pleased to welcome the program, the aforementioned uh, new Democrat member of Parliament and uh, NDP natural resources critic, Charlie Angus. Charlie, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, you know, Rich Kruger does represent uh, his company, his shareholders. He's focused on what he feels uh, needs to be the, uh, the the company's focus in the short and longer term. But what, why is it of interest to you? Why is it of interest to, to parliamentarians, do you think? Well, Rob, I think it was the. I think a lot of people were pretty surprised at uh, Mr. Kruger's comments. Uh, uh, well, number one, that Suncor, which had really played a, done a lot, and I mean, I, I just met with Suncor sustainability officers just last year about you know their commitments on dealing, um, you know, playing a role in dealing with the the, the climate crisis, the emissions issues, but it was his comments. Well, number one, that they were dropping that, but he talked about the urgency that the company faced, and the urgency was basically to make as much money as they could. Um, they've been making record profits, but the Canadians I'm talking to were talking about urgency. This is the summer that the climate crisis really hit home. Uh, you know, thousands of people displaced, uh, huge sections of our northern boreal and subarctic land burning. People's kids couldn't go outside. So when I'm talking to ordinary people, they're talking about the urgency. What are we going to do about this? And here's the CEO of Suncor saying, hey, our urgency is making money. I think he should explain what's the direction with this company right now. Well, and, and I think that's what he was doing to investors. I guess the question is, when it comes to, to businesses, you know, private companies that are making those kinds of decisions or, or setting their focus, at what point does it become the interest then uh, of elected officials? At what point you know, do, is it appropriate or proper to bring a CEO before a commons committee to answer those questions? Well, that's a really good question because Suncor, uh, they basically live in Ottawa and in Edmonton at the legislature with their lobbyists. These guys are having backroom meetings all the time, and they're asking for massive handouts from the taxpayer. So if they're willing to spend that much energy trying to get billions for this carbon capture or uh, on the regs, and they want to do that all behind the scenes, how about doing that in front 
of the Canadian people because the connection between rising emissions and the climate crisis is clear. So what role is Suncor going to play? Uh, Mr. Kruger said that their focus was on making that money, on moving away on the transition. And he also, the thing that really surprised, that he was really blunt, was about going after work and the workers. And we've seen massive job losses uh, in the oil patch, over 50,000 in the last 10 years. So if this is going to automation and this is going to offshore investors and Canadians and Albertans are assuming the risk, yeah, come to Parliament and say, this is, this is where our company's going. And and he should be putting that. I think pretty straightforward about it. Well, I mean, for, what would what would you ask him first of all? What what do you want to hear from him? Well, there is no place on the planet right now that has more potential to to, to run a clean energy economy than Alberta. There's no place. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time meeting with Alberta energy workers. Calgary Economic Development just did this study that talked about 170 thousand jobs would be created in Alberta because of the expertise that's in Alberta. So when Rich Kruger says we're not interested in that, we're hunkering down on oil and gas, when uh, we're seeing the International Energy Agency saying, you know, the writing's on the wall. So why is that? And then the other question for me is the emissions are causing a destabilized climate. You have a part to play in that. What part are you going to play as a good corporate citizen? I think that's in the public interest. Okay. Well, I mean, listen, we, we have a price on carbon. We, we have an emissions cap that's that's coming. And, and if you say, I mean, there, there are opportunities in the transition and companies that, that are oblivious to that are going to get left behind. Uh, isn't that all then potentially to, to Suncor or any other company then? If this is where all of this is going, uh, if companies want to be left behind, then, then that's, that's their decision or their problem, isn't it? Well, that, that's certainly a decision that they can make. But it, the problem is, is if the Canadian public is assuming the risk, if Canadian workers are being targeted because this is about profiting the offshore investors, these are public interest issues. And right now, I think the question for Canadians and Albertans, I mean, I was just talking to people in Edmonton yesterday <laughs> talking about the high risk uh, from, from the subarctic burning out of control. We are in a climate crisis. We are in a crisis that is beyond anything any of us could have imagined, and it's here. And we need to know that it's all hands on deck. Everybody's playing their part, and the companies that have played a part, huge part in rising emissions because uh, and, and, and climate instability, that they're playing their part. And that is a conversation that Canadians are having at the coffee shops, and I think Parliament should be part of it too. I mean, in the short term, and this is part of what, what I think Rich Kruger's focused on, is that uh, they're at heart an oil sands company. There is a demand for fossil fuels still. There's a need to meet that demand. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a higher oil prices at the moment that are, I think, encouraging more of that investment. Like, is, is there anything wrong then with focusing on that in the short term? Well, I think Mr. Kruger needs to say what part of the, how do they see themselves in this issue of transition and in this issue of the you know clear connection between emissions uh, and a destabilized planet and the fact that he said the urgency was to make as much money as possible this wasn't saying you know we've been very profitable they've been hugely profitable it was saying we need to make even more if they're going to do that uh, on the backs of uh, the issue of emissions there was just you know recent charges coming out of their their plant in uh, colorado uh we've seen 1500 energy workers lose their jobs at Suncor this year, 
what is the future of this company? Where are they going? Because are they going to be good corporate citizens at this time of crisis that we really need? We need all the brains. We need everybody uh, working for this because uh, I don't think any of us want to live in a future where we can't let our kids outside because of the burning forest in you know, northern Quebec, uh, my region, subarctic regions. We want we want everybody there. And Richard Kruger has come back, and I think he's he's there's a disconnect. And if he's willing to have these meetings behind the scenes, come out in public and tell us where you're going. Well, it's interesting. I mean, he he did write an op-ed that, that was uh, published in the Calgary Herald and Post Media yesterday. Maybe they're aware of how this has has been received, but he reiterates that yes, look, profitability and sustainability go hand in hand. He says they point to the actions they're taking to decarbonize their base business. That they are still uh, members of the Pathways Alliance and still committed uh, to you know those net zero targets by 2050. Um, so given all of that, I mean, do, do you think that maybe some of the reaction has been overblown, that maybe, you know, the company is still committed to these longer-term targets? Well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I start raising questions, and suddenly he's writing op-eds. I think, hey, we got his attention. And I think he needs to show that he's paying attention because, you know, it was just over a year ago, I was meeting with Suncor's sustainability officer, Martha Hall Finley. She was laying out this plan. Uh, she talked about good corporate citizens. She talked about emissions. Now we're hearing, the, you know, the urgency in the summer that, that Canada burned to make as much money as poss- possible. So how are you going to make that money and what are you going to do? And what about the risk that Canadians are assuming? I don't think he should be afraid of coming to, to Parliament. He sends his people all the time as lobbyists. Come on out. Tell us what the plan is. What's the Parliament back next week? When does the Natural Resources Committee next sit? We sit very soon. Uh, we have energy has been a, a big focus and, and finding solutions and, and presenting something to Canadians. And, and again, I think Alberta, there's so much potential. And I, I was very sad to see him say they're walking away on that. Alberta can lead the way. But uh, Canada needs some answers. So we'll be meeting next week and hopefully we'll get, we'll get Mr. Kruger to come very soon. And we'll see what happens then. We'll leave it there for now. Charlie Angus, uh, appreciate Eddie, your time here. Anytime. Thanks a lot. There you go, New Democrat MP Charlie Angus. Uh, why he thinks Rich Kruger needs to come before this Commons Committee, I'm not so sure. Look, he's the CEO of this company. They've got decisions to make. And, and I think to, to a large extent, that's, that's his prerogative as CEO, uh, to turn the company around, to generate a profit, to return for investors, and in this case, develop natural resources. But here's the thing. I think we're, we're maybe mischaracterizing what it is he has said or maybe what it is they're doing. Suncor hasn't abandoned the Pathways Alliance. They're still a founding member of that and so still committed to to a target of net zero by 2050. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.